Hello, my name is Natalia Ortiz, and I'll be having a conversation with Abigail Thomas. Thomas for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Libraries Community Oral Pro History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is April 29th, 2017, and this is being recorded recorded at Sage Midtown Manhattan. Okay, so hi Abigail. Hi Natalie, how are uh, you doing? Good, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. Okay, great. So tell me, oh, tell us your name, tell me your name and your age if you would like. Yeah, no, no. Um, I'm Abigail Thomas and I am 46, I'll be 47 this August. Oh wow. Taurus? Yeah. No. Leo. <laughs> Leo? Leo, definitely Leo. <laughs> okay, uh, what is your gender pronoun? My gender pronoun traditionally is she, she, her, but I can also go by they, them, and she, them, sir. Okay. And how would you describe your gender? Wow, my gender is basically developed from a trans girl, trans feminine. But over the years, it's been informed by my experience to be sort of like a non-binary trans-feminine. Okay. So I'm still, in many ways, a trans woman. I go on to a world as one, etc. But I have like this internal non-binary, like, I don't know what to call it, mechanism, this feel to it. It's like... I'm always natively rebelling against the idea that just because I'm a trans woman, I have to obey a stereotype or, you know? Right. Or that anyone else does. Right. Hmm. And can you tell me a little bit more about your daily life in terms of being non-binary like being you and, and your yeah it, it's really original because i've had the non-binary um figured out in some ways for the longest time so now but now i'm starting to own more the um trans feminine part like obviously i'm not doing the makeup <laughs> And I want to, it, it's not for a lack of want, it's just all those years of not doing it and just acting like in some way that blended in. Yeah, I hear you. Okay, so when, I'm, I mean, where were you born? I was originally born in Brooklyn, New York, over at Victor Memorial Hospital. Actually, only part of it remains. I think the other part was sold for condominiums. <laughs> okay. And so I'm old enough to know what that feels like now. Okay. Fair enough. So um, have you lived all your life in New York City area? Actually, no. In 1987, I moved with my mother and my sister down to Miami, Florida. So, and I spent down there between 87 and 2000. So I missed a lot of the emerging culture up here uh -huh. as far as the changes that happened, but I also benefited 
from the culture down there, which is, in many ways, New York is better. In many ways, Miami has some things that are better. There's more an openness to it, a natural one. Okay. It's even in the architecture, the buildings, like, a lot of them have completely open first floors. You can literally, there's no doors, you can just walk right under. Nice. So you've been living in in New York City since 2000. 2000. So I came up here just in time for the wonderful events of September 11. I know. Yeah, right? Changed everything. I know. Okay, so how was it growing up here in, in, in New York? I think in a lot of ways it, it, was, it was good to me in more ways than I could imagine. Um, it wasn't until I actually got down to Miami that I, my eyes started to open up to things like um, racism and, and such. The um, system here shelters you a lot from these things. Not totally, but enough that you can walk through ignorantly believing that it doesn't exist in the world. Right. Because until then, I really hadn't seen racial divide. I mean, I had existed in very diverse environments, and I went through special ed most of my youth, which, depending on where you go, is extremely diverse, not just in, like, the races and ethnicities and so forth, but, you know, what people are functional in and so on. So then to go from that sort of like what I would consider um, utopian environment of people just like being able to get along into some place like Miami, where even though it seems like a lot of races exist on there, they exist in their own separate spaces. The contrasts are more notable, especially back then in 87, it's like Miami Beach, where we had moved to, okay, they had spent a lot of people who were um, Spanish and Latin in origin, but at the same time, it was mostly whitewashed. And even the immigrants, this was the case. And then the other ones who were darker skinned would be in places like Overtown, which was on the mainland, like in the slums or whatever. And it's like, I even like a lot of the times I would walk through there not thinking because I was always used to such diversity and it's like, I get off in any community, it's like, what? It's a community, it's like people, I'll walk through it. Mm-hmm. And I get people staring at me, and I'm like, why? Right. It's... Okay. It's interesting, to say the least. Okay, do you remember any great stories or legends, either in New York or in, or in Miami? that you can recall from your childhood? Well, since most of my childhood ended up in New York, um, wow, any great stories or legends from here? I've heard a lot, but I 
think mostly I've always taken from um, people. I've always looked up to actual people. The only fictional character I really looked up to in my youth, and this is going to seem all screwed up, but it was Darth Vader. <laughs> and the reason why is because this was a sad story. This was a very sad person in a sad state who is still taking back his power. I agree with you, according to the story, it's evil, it's sinister, but he's like held up by these machines and by default, he's like the cliche disabled person in a manner of speaking. Right. And so him being all powerful in that is sort of taking back his power and saying, I won't be defined by these disabilities. So. And part of me being in special ed was because I was disabled. So, you know, right. I sort of connected with that. Um, but more I took um, with real people. Uh, Carl Sagan, I always liked. Uh, Martin Luther King was some person I, I saw as someone to aspire to. I'm trying to think of the, um, it's not Emma Watson, I can never think of her name. She's like this really early feminist slash anarchist, like early 19th century. And I can never think of her because she went over to Russia to do the whole Russian Revolution thing. And a lot of people point and say, ooh, that's a communist. Or she was in what Russia was doing, but she really wasn't. She, like a lot of people that went over, were tricked into thinking they would do something right. And then when she came back, she's like, when she was finally led in the country, she wrote that she was completely disappointed because the people that went over there were betrayed. And... They, um, I can't even remember her last name right now, but they would be trained into thinking this would be something different for people, for real people, and it ended up being just another government slash, you know, we're going to make the money thing. Right. Okay. Interesting. So, um, can you describe your childhood and family background? Okay, my childhood as, my early childhood, especially as a disabled child, was mixed with a lot of things. I mean, of course, I took joy in life and whatever, um, but I was sick a lot. And then there were a lot of days I missed from school, and there were a lot of social problems that go in there. I mean, in my first eight years, basically, I was like tormented, set on fire once, raped. What? Yes, so it's sort of like, and then the whole thing, the whole pity of it was, was the rape had me convinced, I always conflated that with my gender because it's sort of like, it's easy to do. You had this like significant sexual assault happen to you at a young age, unless I was something like seven and a half, eight. I'm telling you. And I, but 
I sort of like compacted that down there. I stuffed it down. And I always told myself the gender thing was part of that. It was when it really wasn't. Because, I mean, that was one thing I got from reading Janet Mock because she talks about um, similar experiences when she was younger at that age and she actually got either molested or raped by one of her brother's friends. And I'm like, wow, you know, that hits home. And it's like, so then I'm like, real. Which is a total spin on the, um, and I totally connected with it. And then she, I think she indicated somewhere in the book that that sort of had her confused for a while because um, she sort of conflated the two together as well. And I've read that about a lot of people lately. I'm like, wow, that's, that's interesting. But yeah, it, that's one of the things that held me back for so long because I had held back on transition, not because the desire wasn't there, because I felt it was something in me that was put there by a traumatic event rather than what it was. Wow, did you talk to someone, or you kept it just to yourself? You know, I, I kept it to myself for quite some time. As What basically happened was, finally, it was, my feelings about this and a lot of issues were coming to a head in 2014, and, and already basically come to some conclusion I was suppressed. Probably on more a subconscious level, but... And so what happened was, finally in 2013, 2014, I went into um, the therapist I over at Beth Israel with some on Sinai. They have an outpatient on Nathan D. Perlman, I think it's between 13th and 14th. And it, no, it's between 15th and 16th, I had. And I talked to him and I got on antidepressants and it was probably the best thing I did because I had already been flushing out some of this before, but once I got on the antidepressant, I started getting motivated to do things. And I started flushing out all this, including the um, the rape and all the torment I went through and so on and so forth. And I'm like, holy smokes, this is not because of this. This, you know, may have happened in connection with it, but this is totally separate. I'm like, this is me. It, it had nothing to do with being traumatized aside from me as a person was. Right. I'm like, wow. So then I started doing, I went and I started, um, in addition to doing therapy there, I found a clinical psychologist to talk to, to try to get deeper. Because in outpatient centers, 
The therapists there have a limited amount of time and concentration. So you really can't get that deep. So then start, at that point, I start talking, found someone finally, and start talking to her. And then I'm like, when I reach that point, I'm like, listen, this is what I am. And I've just got to deal with it. I, I don't, I'm going to deal with it and do something about it. Or I'm going to crash mentally. And I didn't know what that meant. All I knew is that I felt that there was this performance I put on for the world, and I was tired of the performance, so it was either going to be I was going to come out and take a breath, or, you know, the whole performance would just fail, and I don't know what a good analogy for that would be. I'd trip over my own thoughts and break my figurative ankle. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay, wow, very yeah. Wow, very interesting. I can't imagine that must have been very confusing. It was, but in the end, it it's extremely rewarding. I mean, more so than than just like putting on makeup or anything, and I'm not belittling those things. Those things are significant in their own right, but I mean, coming out of it that way is like so powerful. It's like, yeah, I mean, I'm like 44, no, I'm like 46 going on 47. I held on to this for around 40 years or more. And now I'm like two and a half years I've gotten um, SRS, my hormones. I'm transitioning well. Good for you, congratulations. Thank you. And it's just like, wow. Awesome, amazing. So, hmm. I think the first person, I think, and I don't wanna get too far off the interview, I think one person asked me going into SRS, what would be the first thing I would do once I got it? And I think they were trying to imply what kind of like acts would you get into? Mm-hmm. And I turned around and I said, I'll run the New York City Marathon. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay, so how did you deal with all this in your childhood? Uh, you didn't tell anyone, but how did you deal with it? Not, you know, I'd like to say it's the best or worst, but I really can't say either. The way I, I dealt with it per se was to store it away and every once in a while when I would get the opportunity, like, for example, when I was like, I think, nine, and my sister's like three years younger than me, I snuck into a room (laughs) and I tried on a bathing suit and I said, oh, this looks great. (laughs) But I mean, it's sort of like, aside from windows like that, I really didn't get that much opportunities. I think one of the best vacations I had when I first moved down to Miami 
I was working in this Burger King restaurant on like 198th and Collins Avenue. It was mostly Canadian and German tourists who basically stayed in the hotels over there. But the assistant manager was a GNC homosexual. He was a GNC gay man, which you don't meet quite often. And he was kind of cute, um, about 10 years older than me, but hey, but no, nothing ever came from it. He was already engaged in a relationship, but he must, he thought I was cute. And he would always chase me around, wanting me, wanting to make me up. <laughs> and I think it was like a few weeks into it, I said, finally, I'm like, why not? What did I go? <laughs> right. And I let him make me up, make me up, and it was like, it was like the most awesome feeling. I wish I had pictures of it. He could take anyone, and and like literally, he could make Lou Ferrigno look like Cindy um, Crawford. It was <laughs> like, and he just took and did a simple makeup, and it was like eighteen at the time. And everyone thought I was gorgeous. And I'm like, wow. So I just used to love coming into work. I mean, I think it was only for like three or four months. But I loved coming into work for that reason. Right, yeah. <laughs> how did you, like, how did you have that experience and not continue with the transition or... Because basically at the time, my mother was dating um, someone. Well, she would start dating someone up here. Mm -hmm. See, this is the problem, and it's it, it also amazing me sometimes. She dated a, a man who was very masculine and very toxic masculine and whatever else. And he used to like... Um, well, there's no kind way to put it. He used to hit me. Okay. Um, so I had to put up with his abuse. But when I was down there, I would try things like I would put on bikini underwear. And he would basically humiliate that concept. And that was men's bikini underwear. So, oh, wow. yeah, so I had very little spaces, generally speaking where I could actually experiment or where I felt comfortable with it. And, and when you became an adult, like when you, when you had the chance to do it because you were independent. It, it, it's kind of a, yeah, it's kind of a weird thing because I was always, it was always, as far as a family unit, we were always enmeshed. Even when she stopped with a boyfriend, it was always me, my mother, my sister. And then some, and yeah, nowadays it's still the same thing, even though a lot has changed. Um, but yeah, so I never really stopped, mostly because in the dynamic that was there, it was always my, my sister was my younger sister, was always the one that basically 
got spoiled. And I was basically the one who was leaned on. Mm. So I never really felt free to experiment, which was right. a pity. Because looking back now, I could have experimented a lot. Right. And it's kind of interesting. I had a lot of, like you said, the Burger King was definitely an opener. Right. And I had a, a conversation with my father in a car when I was like 14, 15, which was really interesting because he like saw how I was growing my nails. And at the time, I, I never really got into talking, but what I had done for a short time was I would take regular maxi pads mm -hmm. and sort of tuck it down there. Because <laughs> it was the easiest thing to do. And he had spotted them and then he knew how my nails were growing out. So he's like, listen, are you gay? And I'm like, oh, wow, no, I'm not gay. And then I went into the story of how the rape happened because I was still like connecting the two in my mind. And I was like, oh, because of that, I'm girly. Because that was the way I and put it. And the rape was perpetrated by... The rape was basically perpetrated by two young men slash boys. I mean, they were about 13, 14 each. And one basically, um, well, one took the front and basically molested me from there, and the other took the rear door, whatever it was worth. And that's a whole other amazing story on its own. Um, but the short end of that is I basically had gone out to go out and play because it was the first clear day in a while during fall. And on my way out, the person, I forget her name, Subbert or Mrs. Subbert or something, she basically said, I won't go out there. There's bullies in that schoolyard. I'm like, that's a really weird thing to say. But I went out there anyway, and um, so I was out there. They managed to call me over because at the time I was very much a loner. And then they managed to lead me to a convenient area on the schoolyard and then under a staircase in a corner where no one's watching, you know. Um, but the gist of the story was after then, I went running back into the lunchroom and she was standing there and went to tell her. And she basically turned around and said, I told you so. And I'm like, wow. Wow. And then, yeah, right, exactly. And that set the tone for, because really, I was already being incessantly bullied. So, you know, I was looking to someone else to give me like a measure by where this stood. And then she said, oh, I told you so. I figured, oh, okay, so it's no different than someone taking lunch money. Wow. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so that was like 
and that sent the stage of how I interpreted gender, and undoing that did a lot of good. Okay, and, and who is the most important person in your life? I'd say the most important person falls in two categories, um, or is actually two people. One would be my mother, and the second would be my paternal grandmother. Um, my mother was basically a single mother. My father was basically always drugging himself up, so he was not there at all. And she basically raised us, working off the books, on, um, you know, taking whatever she could from welfare. And with me, I was a sick child, so I had, I had even the seizure medication, so we were on food stamps and Medicaid the whole nine yards. And my paternal grandmother, who was like, 18 when she came over here from Ireland and she had basically worked herself through whatever she needed to in life um but yeah she was the one who would like if my mother was doing off the books work to like bring home money she was the one who would be there as backup so if the school couldn't get in contact with my mother she would get the call and she would come out and pick me up. So I spent a lot of time with her. Okay. Okay, good. So um, who are you close to now? And um, besides, you know. Generally people? speaking, my mother and my sister, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I should get closer to other people. <laughs> I need to diversify. <laughs> and how about work? Like, how's your work environment nowadays? My work environment will definitely involve. Um, I basically, my road here has been pretty long. It's been like, you know, not like I've been panting. It's been like one long breath, and now I'm just releasing or I had just released. So I went on to disability for, for depression in about 2009, I think. Okay. So now I'm still on disability. I'm, I'm sort of amazed at where it's gotten me this far. Um, but yeah, I'm looking to, now I have this surgery, I'm considering before I go leap back into things, what do, what else do I want to have done? Because the hormones are, I'm not going to say they're the easy part, but relatively speaking, they're easier than let's say focal surgery or, or breast implants, whatever it is. Um, so I'm slowly just considering that, um, but yeah, after that, I'm looking at a lot of long-term plans right now. I got, it, they're not the prettiest, I got called in my Section 8, so on the 16th, in the middle of all this madness that's going to be going on, I'm actually going to be up in Rochester. Um, 
to see about an application I put up there. And if it pans out, I could be moving up there. I don't know about permanently. I mean, I may be between here and there for a while, given, you know, the medical care and everything, but... Okay, okay. Life, it changes. I know, yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, what... What does community mean to you? Or are you, you know, you, you coming to Sage? You yeah, no, community, I think, is something we build together. I think a lot of people get the idea of community as far as nostalgia. It's like, I grew up with this when I was younger, and I think for some people that's fine. But for me, community is more like what I build with other people. It's the connection, it's the love, it's the sincerity. Like when I come here and when I connect with a lot of people, it's like all that is is community. And it's much more than these wolves that are here or even right. the individual stories. Okay. Because we're building new stories. Right. <laughs> And how does the trans community play a role in your in A your lot, actually. Um, it really, and, and I'm ashamed to say this, it really hasn't played a huge role in my early life, which I think both of us were robbed of. <laughs> um, but yeah, now it does. Now it feels like I'm playing catch-up. I'm, I'm like reading a lot of good trans literature, watching a lot of good trans media and, and trans acting and it's like I'm totally like, wow, I should have watched this years ago. This is good. <laughs> good, good for you. And um, how, how do you see yourself in this moment of increased LGBTQ uh, visibility? Oh, I see myself in heaven. I mean, the only other thing that could happen, and I think it's coming right behind the LGBTQ, is the range of, of, of disability or disabled people, which I think it's coming right behind them. Um, a good example of that is in this city. For, I think it's been the past two years, I think it's going to happen again in June, they actually have a disability pride march. Really? <laughs> and, and it's like wicked. It's like all these discussions. Like I hear these young kids on YouTube talking about what it's like to be deaf or hard of hearing. I'm like, yes, I know what that is. Can you tell us about it a little bit? That okay. disability, like you were... Yeah, no, I mean, um, I basically... I don't know which came first. I mean, I've, I've had epilepsy. And when you've had it, you have it. It may not be medicated as mine isn't, but it's still there. It's a matter of life. It affects the way you relate to people and adjust your moods and so on. Um, but I think mostly what's impacted me is the profound hearing loss. Cause 
and this is what I love about this transition. It's like I have got my first pair of reasonable hearing aids only after I started to transition. So I'm transitioning in more than one way. It's like How come? It, you know what it is? Even in this great city, the insurance used to pay only for the cheapest, most fly hearing aids. And, and I couldn't get anything better. And then I think between a number of insurance changes, and then I talked to one audiologist who made a recommendation that I switch to this insurance instead, which I have now. I got just the right, you know, things in order to get them. And I walked in the door, I got my hearing test done, and I'm like, wow. Good for you. Thanks. Okay, now, <clears throat> how do you, how do you, well, you told us a little bit how you see the world, but how do you think the world sees you? I, you know, I really don't know. And that's an interesting question. I mean, I know how some people see me because of what they describe or what I think they see me. Like, like for example, I started, the, I hijacked the transgender community page on Facebook. Okay. And I put editors on it and it's getting publicity and people are liking it all over. But I get people who message me like, you're like, rah, 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 rah. you're it. You're like, you, you shouldn't, you're, and they don't even know me or my gender. And they're like, you're a man. I'm like, no, I'm a Facebook page, honey. <laughs> I'm not sure if you ever watched Doctor Who. Uh -huh. I actually created one picture. They did that the, the last time they did the master, you know, which is an old character. They turned it into a woman and made it the mistress. And so I made a little picture of that where, this, where the, um, I put a speech bubble and it says, no, I'm a villain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, interesting. So, what does it mean to be yourself? To be real, to be authentic? You know, I'm, I'm still asking that question. I don't think there's a definitive answer. I think in the end though, I think it's just letting you out, all your creativity, all your expression. Like for example, the one great thing I started doing, and I must do more of, is I started getting back to my writing and writing a lot more. And people read it like, because especially when I started writing about trans experience, it's like, wow, yeah, I know what that is. I, 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 I understand. I connect to it. And it's like you inspire people that way. And it's like, it's so found and no one no one writes anymore they do YouTube <laughs> I do YouTube <laughs> <laughs> okay 
Okay. And, and <laughs> when was the first time that you became aware of gender or sexuality? Oh, wow. I, I don't think I'd say this first, first time. I think it's more been like layers. I think I've always been, because from the second you're aware of the world around you, you're sort of aware of these things. Like, um, for example, you know, the first time I was where I was girly was, if you want to call it that, was when I was like four or five. And I saw something in the gum machine which wasn't traditionally for boys or whatever. And I just thought, oh, that's so cute. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and that's when, because all of a sudden you think like, oh no, I'm the wrong person for that. <laughs> okay. um, and yeah, as far as sexuality, it's the same thing. I mean, I had my first, um, little like puppy crush on a girl okay. when I was like 10, 11. And then I had my first orgasm when I was 12 off a boy. So okay. <laughs> it, it, it comes in layers. All these things are like generally so intertwined. You just have to like as you go, you learn them. Okay. Okay, and do you identify as gay, bi, heterosexual? Well, I sort of identify as this weird wishy-washy sexuality. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but then I took gender therapy and I got informed by a, a very good woman by the name of Melissa. And she told me, that what I, well, generally what people call themselves in my case was sexually fluid. And that right. is my sexuality is in constant state of fluidity. Sometimes I wake up gay, sometimes I wake up straight, bi, pan, aromantic, asexual, homoromantic, homo asexual. <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I've, I've gone from like, looking at like someone and appreciating them in a sexual sense to in another woman to two seconds later, sitting in, in a, in um, a hot tub in LA fitness, <laughs> um, flirting with a, with a guy and being romantically attracted to him, so. Okay, okay. And, and how do you feel um, about safety? Do you have any safety concerns? I, I partly think I, I really should. I think in part due to my early years, I'm sort of like, and I'm trying to describe Right, as best I can, but when I think of safety, it's more of a low. It's sort of like I'm running to get away, but if the bully catches up to me, I'm like, oh, shit, I'm done it again. Okay. So it, it, 
it's not exactly the best frame of mind, but you know. And have you had any, like, what's your experience going out every day, you know? I Do, think are, are, are people nice? Are they. In generally speaking, I think people are nice. I think the people who are not nice in general will mind their own business, which I'm not sure it's the best thing, but it's better for me. That they mind their own business rather than take a baseball bat to me. Right. Um, but no, I mean, I, I have, especially now that I transitioned more, had noticed a lot more scenarios. And I'm not always sure whether they're because they're picking up a trend or they're picking up um, more feminine because I mean a lot of people tell you you know you're trans you you know you're foisted but the reality is as you go along in transition enough cues change in you that people take notice and when they start really picking you up as feminine they'll start treating you more like a woman and there has been a few episodes where that's happened. And, and it is, um, needless to say, interesting. Um, I'm happy to say I'm not that put out by it because, you know, I've dealt with similar by way of disability. So, you know, it's just a change of why I'm getting, like, having this hate directed at me, but it's not something I'm un unaccustomed to, so. And, and how was, <clears throat> how was your transition? How did you get used to others and others got used, like how did you get used to, you know, I, I guess you were, um, you presented some mail before? And yeah, I mean, I've, I've had a couple of people so take a look at my older pictures. They're like, no, that's not, that's you. And they're like, I'm like, yeah, and, but you're not wearing makeup. <laughs> right. But yeah, no, I mean, people do notice. And yeah, there are changes. For um, some people, it's enough to the point that they say, like, Wow, that is a transition. Um, to others, it's sort of like, eh, you know. Right, but do you, like, how did you feel in transition? Did you ever feel scared of going out, scared of people? Oh, I know God, you're real, yeah. I mean, I felt um, anxious, and, and there was um, a long time before I started, I had actually gotten in on a special at LA Fitness, um, local to me, the gym. Because uh, I wanted, they had a pool. And I like my pool. <laughs> Sorry. Me too. Oh, awesome. Me too. I always join a, a gym that has a pool. It has to have a pool. Yeah, no, I, I was with Planet Fitness before for because it's cheap, but it's not worth it without the pole. But um, yeah, I, I went through a long time where I was anxious about going, and especially about going and using the pool because I'm like, what if I use the restroom? 
I'll get thrown out or I'll get like beaten up or I mean I had all these things in my mind. Did you use the women's um, dressing room? I I finally came to it. What ended up happening is I had to go and what I did was I got my name change and I already had my gender change letter. And I got one of those NYC IDs with the new gender name. And it took me about a month to get up the courage, but then I went and I'm like, we've got to change this on my record. So I can feel comfortable going in here. He's like, I don't know. I said, no, I just spoke with someone very reliable earlier. It's the law. It's the law, yeah. Yeah, right. No, they changed it. I mean, it, it it still took me about a week more to go in there because I'm like, <laughs> but I went in there and it was basically it was like my first restroom experience. Okay. It was it was built up more in my mind than it was actually going in there. And the irony is, all these stages I've gone through in there. I have basically been like that, and each time I pass one, it's like, wow. You think it was like, easier than what you thought? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and, but it's more profound than that. It's affirming. It's like, I'm finally home. Okay. It's like, I think one of the more significant ones was the, the um, because the LA Fitness I'm a member of has, um, a pool, a sauna, and no, a pool, a hot tub, and a sauna in the locker room. So, what the girls will do a lot is after they get out of like doing whatever and showering, they'll go right in, just a towel, buck naked, into um, the sauna and just lay there. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. But finally, I'm like, you gotta do it. You're going to have SRS in like, God knows how long, but it's not gonna be that much longer. You've gotta do something. So I'm like, okay. Literally, I think it was like three days before I had the consultation with Justine in June of last year. I literally, Went in, took my shower after getting out of the pool, wrapped myself in the towel, nothing more, and I walked right in. And I just laid there while women, like other women, just walked in and out. And that was actually my thought. I'm like, yes, I'm finally home. I'm finally where I belong. You never had any bad experience with the the women's bathroom? Everything was... Fine or? Um, I wouldn't say bad, bad. I've had like a few like, um, offish experiences. Like for example, um, one time when I was walking out, an older woman was walking in and she had to step back and take a look at the bathroom sign again just to make sure she was entering the right door. She didn't, she wasn't mean about it, 
she still smiled and went in and I smiled and went out and we went on our way like anything else. But it's, you know, it's just that one moment. And then another time in Whole Foods, down around where the World Trade Center is, I was walking into the toilet bowl and this one woman walking out with daughter gave me sort of an odd look like, and she took her daughter a little bit closer. But this was also earlier on in my transition. And I think a lot of people still feel uneasy with the apparent sometimes. Right. Okay. And um, do you have any... Um, do you feel that you had to choose between expressing your gender identity and keeping your um, economic stability? In a matter of speaking, yeah, especially with trying to like play catch up this lane in the game. Uh -huh. I mean, it, it, and I think this has been true of anything of the um, transition. Transitioning is expensive. It's not cheap. And makeup is is sort of the same way. And I've been buying like the cheapest makeup from the um, Clarence section at Twiggy. <laughs> and I, the thing is, I barely even go at it. I'm like, do I really have the confidence for this? I'm like, half the time, I'm like, you gotta do it. I'm like, Make fun of me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, do you feel like? Do you feel the? Do you feel seen? Do you, do you feel like? You you know like what's what's? How, how do you feel when when you go out? Do I feel seen? Yeah. That's an oh, tell me a time when you I feel actually. I actually feel the sanest and sanest I ever have. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's like, it's, um, do I feel sane? Um, I don't, that's pretty subjective, but I mean, it, it's like, yeah, in comparison to what I used to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, God, what you're saying there, like, yeah, no, I, I definitely feel saner. Okay, and it feels good. It feels awesome. <laughs> good isn't even touching it. Okay, you, you seem to me like a very happy person, okay? Have you always been this happy and outgoing? And yeah, which... Expressive, even before transition? Or? Well, no, here, here's the thing. I've always been relatively a pretty happy person. Outgoing, yeah, I guess. But the problem has been this. The outgoing part was always affected by my disability and not hearing a lot and not being engaged in conversation a lot takes a lot away from that. And pre-transition, and I'm not sure if this is due to hearing or not owning who I was or a combination of the two, but I wasn't as expressive so now all that's coming out, and I'm like... Right, okay. 
Give me this life. I want a bite of it. Is there anything else that you would like to add to this interview about your life and how you feel? I think, yeah, well, I think my life is great, honestly. I come from a, the 70s. I mean, we couldn't even dream about doing hormones, let alone surgery. Right. And now here I am, I'm like, wow. Um, but I think the one thing I can add to this, and the one thing I took from Janet Mott's thing, because I saw through a lot of her story when I read it and listened to it halfway through my transition, that her transition wasn't straightforward. It was actually a crooked transition. And that's a lot of the stories I've taken since then. Like, just because your transition isn't straightforward, just because you don't do it when you're younger, or, you know, doesn't invalidate you. Right. And I think that's something I take in this life now. It's like, okay, I have my SRS. I'm not doing my makeup yet. I haven't had a laser or electrolysis, but I'm on the road to transition. It doesn't have to be straight or in order. It just has to be, you know, something I can do in the time I can do it. Right, okay. And I think that's the most powerful thing. And I think, you know, if someone's listening to this, that should be the one thing they should take from it. Yeah, you're, you are who you are, and you need to go where you're going, but it doesn't have to be straight and perfect. It can be crooked and imperfect, and especially crooked and imperfect, because that's when you have the most fun. <laughs> God, good for you. <laughs> people to hear one thing from you, what would it be? Love yourself. I mean, it, it, it's the simplest thing to say. Uh, and most people know it, but they don't understand it. And I think if one thing saved my life throughout all this, it's being able to internalize that somehow, somewhere, and just keep remembering it. Because when you're like in a desperate state of mind, no matter what's caused by, mm -hmm. that one thing could get you through. Right. You're right. Totally agree. Okay. I guess that's it. Thank oh, you. wow. We're at the yeah. end. <laughs> we made it. Give me five. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>